Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors, the podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And don't forget, you can sign up to be a member of The Great Indoors Insiders to support the podcast, enjoy ad-free listening, get bonus content, as well as first dibs on ticketed events. Just visit thegreatindoorspodcast.com. That's thegreatindoorspodcast.com. Now, we are very excited to welcome today's guest to the show. I'm personally kind of freaking out, as this person has been a long-term design idol and inspiration of mine. He's a king of colour and joyful decorating. And what a scoop, because we have managed to pin down this very busy man based in New York. He's here on a flying visit to open his new store in London. It's been 30 years since he started out on his mission to bring modern American glamour to our living rooms. He started out as a potter, which he discovered at summer camp at the age of 12. While at Brown University, he spent most of his time making Chanel-inspired teapots and marrying his ceramic work with his love of pop culture, contemporary art and fashion. However, his professor said to him, you have no talent. You need to move to New York and become a lawyer. (laughs) Well, he did this for three years, assisting, as he puts it, tyrants in the entertainment industry before realising he didn't need the approval of his pottery teacher and he started teaching in exchange for studio space. He began cold calling buyers at Barney's in New York and when he landed an order, he rollerbladed to the studio at 6am, made 100 mugs and went back home to bed. Since then, he's branched out into cushions, then sofa for the cushions and onto furniture, all with his signature modern American style. He is now a recognised global brand. His motto, rather brilliantly, is if your heirs won't fight over it, we won't make it. Can you guess who it is yet? Drum roll, Mr. Jonathan Adler. Hello. What a lovely intro. Thank you so much. I think that's the longest intro we've ever given anyone, Jonathan, but you've been busy. That's because I'm old. I've been at it for 30 years. There's a lot to say. And if I didn't know myself, I would be fascinated to hear what I have to say. Oh, yeah, it sounds good. Unfortunately, I know the truth. (laughs) Yes, it sounds, I sound ever so compelling. Now we'll unpick all that and get to the truth in a bit. Yes. (laughs) Oh, do you hear? Oh, my gosh, you're drinking tea. That's very British. (laughs) The the aggressive clinking is... (laughs) just come to an end. It would appear that Jonathan has just been very (laughs) aggressively delivered a cup of tea by his darling English husband. Yes, the aggressive clinkage. And there is a, what Jonathan is politely (laughs) referring to as a clinkage of teacups. I I think from this end we might be calling that a clashing of the teacups. Now comes the milk is being put back in the fridge. Fridge shut, shuttered, slammed. And I think we just heard the fridge door slam. It's going well over there, is it, Jonathan? Morning. It is. (laughs) It's just another day um, in the Adler Dunin household. You know, I'm American. My Simon is English. We've been together for 30 years and we've basically turned into sort of a real run of the mill, normal English couple. Like we might as well be on Coronation Street. And it's all, you know, did you fill the kettle? Who made the last cup of tea? It's very like bog standard English. She knew. <laughs> Love that. But first of all, you know, I don't want to be rude, but why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) I am here to celebrate the opening of my new store at 91 Pelham Street in London. And I'm also here because England is my spiritual home. I am the most raging Anglophile you will ever meet. You know, in a world in which I suppose one can identify as whatever one wants, I 
definitely identify as English, even though I was brought up in a crappy farm town in New Jersey. Why? What is it you like? Every England is just, from day one, it was just sort of in my bones. I came here uh, first in 87 as a for like my junior year abroad in college. But I think there's something about the Brits' uh, love of language and cheekiness and the fact that you all insult each other immediately and can roll with it. <laughs> Americans are very bizarrely thin-skinned. Like, I've always thought that sort of the language of life is gentle teasing and mocking relentlessly. In America, if you mock or tease people, they think you're serious. And in England, they obviously don't. So yeah, England, my spiritual home. That's so interesting because you married an Englishman because I married a South African and they share the American, in my opinion, thin-skinned with it. He just doesn't get my British humour at all. Like I'll crack a, a barb and he looks so stricken. Like, how can you say something so mean? And I'm like, I'm joking. Well, that's on him. Because <laughs> I, in my experience, South Africans share that uh, thing. But I think you just, I think, is it too late? What? To divorce yeah, you no, oh. it, yeah. You're stuck with him? Oh my God. I'm mortgaged up to my eyeballs. We've had children. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> Oh, yeah, God. oh. But he has lots of redeeming qualities. He's a builder, so I keep him busy. Uh, okay, that's good. <laughs> I understand that. Well, that's I married a a window dresser, and I cannot tell you how handy that comes in because window dressers are like the unsung heroes of our world. They can do anything. You have to rig things and do things and build things and hang things. People think of window dressers as these sort of limp-wristed incompetents, but I am here to tell you that it is not true. Wow. Window dressers. Yeah. So anyone who's listening, marry a window dresser. It's a, it's a win. And then, so how is it? So he's obviously, as a window dresser as well, got quite strong opinions on design and the aesthetics of your home. How does that work out with the two of you? It's so funny. In as much as people think about my Simon and me, um, which they really should think about us all the time, in my opinion. (laughs) But in as much as they do, I think they assume that we are two sort of high-strung homosexuals who are constantly bickering over how the obelisks should be arranged on the mantle and which gugals and bibelots should be adorning the coffee table. And the reality is, Shenu is anything but that. It's very kind of just cash. I think Simon understands the creative process, obviously. And he recognizes that sort of the decor thing is kind of my playground um, and just lets me get on with it. And I think he's very comfortable with change. Because, of course, windows, you know, have to put them in, you take them out, you put them in, you take them out. So when my poor, long-suffering husband comes home and finds, like, a brand new sofa and rug in the living room, he's, like, totes comfy with that because it's familiar <laughs> to him. The difference, I think, in our approaches is that window dressing is a very ephemeral practice. And doing what I do is quite the opposite. The things I make really do need to be around forever, and they really are, I hope, things that people's heirs will fight over. So when I design and make something, I'm really thinking about quality and permanence. And so I think that's one of the main differences in our creative approaches. He's looking for sort of just the the frisson of the when you see something at the installation, and I'm looking for something that continues to stay with you. So I guess 
I guess he's sort of a shower and I'm a grower. <laughs> um, it's interesting, though, that you say, obviously, he has he has an eye. He's very interested in how things look, but he lets you get on with it. Because I know a lot of our listeners, one of the things that comes up again and again is sort of half of them say, I can do what I want. My partner doesn't care, doesn't notice or might only care what I'm spending. And then there's the other half of which I fall into whose partners have really strong opinions, which this can be vexing. Is I mean, it too late? Are you all in with him? Again, I'm all in. Too late. Too late. You ladies should have come to me earlier. (laughs) What the hell? Why why didn't you call me like decades ago? Well, I have a funny, I have a thing. Um, I I did a uh, manifesto when I first started my biz. And as much as I even started my biz, it kind of just happened. But one day I was sitting around at dinner with Simon and he said to me, like, what do you, so what are you trying to say with your work? And I said, well, I, I guess I believe my home, your home should make you happy. And he said, go on. I said, I believe you should be, and then we sort of started riffing on all the different things that I believe. And my manifesto, if I do say, has actually been copied a million times over. It was just one of those, like, moments of inspiration that really triggered something. Anyway, the reason I bring it up is that one of the things I say in my manifesto is, we believe that when it comes to decorating, the wife is always right, unless the husband is gay. And I think that's a fantastic tool that the wife can use to get her way. Because basically, it's, if, you, if you point that out to your husband, it's basically saying, if you interfere with my wishes, then your masculinity is dangling by a thread. And men <laughs> will be very uh, threatened by that and they'll let you get on with it. So I think he wouldn't mind that. I think oh, he's quite no. comfortable in his, in his metrosexuality. But I love your, I, we've looked at your manifesto. I mean, I think it's great. We should dive into that because the next point on your manifesto, we believe in carbohydrates and to hell with the consequences. Yes. Well, everything I say is a lie. That's the one thing. I'm the most unreliable narrator you'll ever meet because I'm a complete workout lunatic. When I'm not drinking cups of tea, I am in the gym like 18 hours a day and I really try not to hit the carbs. So I'll say anything for a laugh, but um, (laughs) there's a complete... There's a complete dissonance between what I say and what I do. This is my kind of manifesto. Half of it's it's rubbish. Yeah, it's all lies. Lies, lies, lies. I'm going to pick one out because I like this one. I believe colours can't clash. How about that? Is that Mm. true? To temps en temps, I don't know. I I say it, but I can be a bit of a colour Nazi and I have my very... I say it because my... In as much as I have a persona, it is that I try to be, you know, sort of an inspiring Dr. Doolittle of design. My truth might not be quite so freewheeling and inspiring as I pretend. Of course, some colors can clash, but I, I I do, in my heart, really believe in lots of color. And I just have sort of very specific kind of rules within my approach to design. Can we uh, dig into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. share the rules, share the rules, Jonathan. Well, the rules, and again, these are just kind of my the way I often use color. So it's it's not it's nothing that's written down. I think one of my one of my most basic approaches to color actually is that I use tons of white in decorating. Like I'll use just I often just use white walls uh, and then do a lot of sort of a 
classical foundation that's quite neutral and then just use color and accessories but use it with abandon and so the lesson i suppose is that a little color actually can go a long way that's sort of a, a you know an entry level approach to overdosing on color of course if you want to go a little more next level then you can get even more colorful and that's actually what i've done in our new house we just actually bought a house in palm beach florida and it's quite colorful i did actually a very colorful walls which is kind of different for me yeah it is absolutely you are sort of known for the white walls so just before we come into the colors you've used in florida for our listeners here are you a a brilliant white wall or do you have a, a shade that perhaps uk listeners and and american ones might recognize as your preferred go-to white do you know i can never remember what it is it's some benjamin Moore white i can't remember and i think it's actually a little bit situational and i think there's a reason for the pharaoh and ball phenomenon in england the light and the vibe is different here it's always gray outside (laughs) yeah but i i love england as i said i love it more than anything and i totally understand and relate to the british design vibe but being in florida If I didn't use brilliant, bold colors, it would just feel totally wrong. So there's something about locale and light that dictates palette. P.S. Hostile Husband has just turned on kettle in background if you hear a rumbling. (laughs) Another (laughs) cup of tea already. (laughs) Coming back to obviously potting, is that the verb? As your, your first love. And obviously now you're so busy traveling, opening opening shops and designing furniture. Do you still have time to get into the studio and do your own pots or are you now more of a director? So, so I've had a vision for this is how the pot should look. Make that pot, there's a person. You know, we famously hear that some of the most famous drawings that Damien Hirst, the artist, did were his spot paintings. And then he got so rich and important and busy that he had people to paint his spots. Are you still are you still there with your wheel? Does it still relax and and inspire you? Complicated question. First of all, nice work if you can get it, Damien Hurst. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am very much at my wheel and in the studio. All of the models for my stuff starts in my New York pottery studio. So I still make all the models. I mean, I have a couple of pottery assistants with whom I've worked for a long time. So we sort of work together, but I still throw everything, the models. I don't do serial production in my studio. And I think that's the complicated part of your question was you said, is it still relaxing and enjoyable? Relaxing? No, because I spent my pretty years, my pretty years, in case you're wondering, were 27 to 32. Then it all went south. (laughs) Um, But I spent my pretty years as a full-time potter making every bloody mug myself, every teapot, every decanter, every vase. And it was a really crazy time in my life. I would I would get up at 6 a.m., rollerblade to my studio, as mentioned, um, make 100 mugs, rollerblade home, pass out, like rinse, repeat for five years straight, seven days a week. It was bananas. And... It was incredibly instructive, but it was far from relaxing. So, you know, now potting is so native to me and so easy. That I don't even, I don't really, I, I don't even think about it. It'd be like saying, do you still enjoy breathing air? You know, it's very much the way I think. I think in terms of clay and think in terms of the possibilities of clay. But is it relaxing? Not exactly. It's just sort of my medium of choice. 
I think my process and my persona and my oeuvre itself is quite misunderstood uh, because it's truly a craft-driven design practice. And I think one of the reasons my stuff might be slightly misunderstood, and I don't feel, I'm not bitter at all, truly. I'm just like, you know, kind of grappling with and analyzing my stuff, how it's perceived, what it means. And I think that... I strive to make things that look effortless. I strive to make things that look as if they were uncovered rather than created. I think that, to me, that's when a piece is very successful. And so I think it might be a little vexing for people who might come into my shop and see this real vast range of things that I make. They probably wouldn't really understand the process of how those things are made, nor should they have to. I mean, that's for me to work on. But, you know, I don't think I do an incredible job of really communicating the craft and process involved, partially because, as I said, I want things to just kind of look like they were always there. But but the truth is that every piece I make is, you know, sort of crafted, starts in my studio, has goes through millions of iterations before it becomes a piece in my shop. I've got one of your, well, I've got a few of your pieces, Jonathan, obviously, but The Real Hero, one of my most favourite, favourite pieces in my home, and it is one of your pieces, is the Frida bars with the little lidded, or is it a Frida pot? It's got a little lid. And my brother, who is a massive fan of yours, I have to say, he bought it for me for a significant birthday. It was for my 40th birthday. And I am so precious about this pot. Like whenever we have a move around or switch about, I'm always like, I'm going to take the pot and I'm going to put that in the (laughs) cupboard so it doesn't ever, you know, break. I'm really interested in, in the form and function you alluded to just there, because when it comes to pots, you can, you know, they can be really sculptural and and as long as they I guess don't leak then they are functional if you want to use them as vases for flowers but do you when you get into the furniture and specifically chairs and seating which I think are you know are quite difficult do you end up frustrated that you've you've dreamt up a beautiful shape of the perfect chair but actually you can't sit in it or it or it you know it would look sculpturally great but the legs don't aren't strong enough you know is that that must be something quite difficult that that you've had to learn on top of potting dude it is a journey it is a journey like the process from inspiration to reality is quite complicated and quite long and as a potter I have much more agency. You know, I can make everything. I can sit in the studio. I can work with my team, say, no, let's change this. It can happen much more quickly. When it comes to a piece of furniture, making the first prototype, which I don't do with my own two little hooves, you know, I have to, it has to be done by other artisans. It takes a long time. And that, that's frustrating for me as a, as a potter who expects everything to be done now. But, it, yeah, I go through tons of iterations of furniture design. One interesting thing is that in furniture, there there are lots of hard and fast rules and measurements, which I find quite satisfying and sort of, it it almost feels like mathematically satisfying knowing the rules, you know, what, what the range of chair heights and table heights needs to be. The spatial relationships, again, for, I have sort of a geometric mathematical mind and I find that very satisfying. Of course, the rules are meant to be broken. So, that's part of the journey. You know, currently, this is getting into the weeds, but 
in America, people like seat heights high. I don't know why. Maybe we're just like big lumbering people. And I've always thought that low seat heights are the most basic element of chic. Like, you know, when I think about chic spaces, I always think about like a 14 inch seat height um, and a long, low, wide, loungy space. And so one of my never ending battles as an American designer is convincing people um, that when I say I want like a 14 or 15 inch seat height, I mean, I want a 14 or 15 inch seat height. There's a creep of seat height. So yeah, it's it's a journey and one has to be a little bit dictatorial. And I think, I think one of the most interesting things about being a designer and about being any creative process is how intensely analytical one has to be after receiving the first prototype. I see this designing is redesigning and I see it with my my husband Simon who's a brilliant writer and just gets on with it but he has the ability to really grapple with his writing. You know, he he lays it out and then he he's doggedly able to keep rewriting until it's crafted and sculpted into a beautiful perfect piece of prose. It's the same thing with with design and I think it's very easy to give up because inevitably, inevitably, the first iteration of what you imagined something would be, it's it's extraordinarily disappointing. And it would be so easy just to be like, Ugh, I suck, I give up. But you got to just kind of roll up your sleeves and work and work and work until it is done and looks right and seems effortless. That's the creative process right there, isn't it? There's that I mean, yeah, isn't exactly it? Is. Like across start, the board. There's, some, there's something that goes around Instagram or, or every now and then. I can't quite remember it. But you start off going, my idea is brilliant. Oh, my God, I'm brilliant for having this brilliant idea. This is it. This is the thing. This is the thing. I'm a genius. Then you go through the, oh, no, maybe it's not so brilliant. Oh, my God, I'm an awful person. This is a terrible right? idea. I'm such a loser. <laughs> my whole life choices <laughs> are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. Why did I marry that guy who can't take a joke? <laughs> And that writer with opinions, what the hell was I thinking? I'm a failure. Listen, I'm doing daily stories at the moment with my husband um, doing at my house. So I'm going to have this, I'm going to get this deluge of people going, your husband's so great. How dare you be so rude about him? Oh, dear. (laughs) And then the final part of the creative process is, like you're saying, once you've been through the mire and the grind and you haven't flaked out and you've kept going... That's when it all gets rather brilliant again. Yes, but cut to there's so many other missing steps uh-huh. along the way when you are in business as I am, which is that the goddamn thing has to be at the right price. Yeah. So there's so much like value engineering and thinking and compromising when necessary because it, it's like a real puzzle. You know, it has to be at the right price. It needs to be shipped from God knows where to God knows where else without breaking. I walked past a jewelry shop the other day and I just like suddenly became green with envy at the simplicity of of a jewelry business <laughs> teensy yeah teeny tiny, tiny in a teeny tiny space and then I walked past a swimmer shop and I was like I was irate thinking why didn't I become a goddamn swimwear or jewelry designer why did I have to make big hulking pieces of furniture oh but we love you for it Jonathan I'm so glad you're not just designing teeny tiny things thank you it's a life of service it's all for you it's all for you <laughs> where does it come from your design inspiration because you know you're they are 
big in personality. They make bold statement, your pieces, whether it's a sofa or a pot. Where, where do you draw inspiration from? The eternal question. I think that inspiration is a funny question. It's something people always ask. And I, I wish I had some sort of pat answer, you know, what people want. But the, and, Oh, I do have a pat answer. I have, my pat answer is that I just keep my eyes and my mind wide open, which is kind of true. You know, there's inspiration can strike anywhere. It can come from, you know, a cloud or a flower or, or going to the V&A. You know, design is a dialogue. So I think inspiration is a tricky question. Well, just unpick for me then, because you sort of like term your style as... Modern American glamour. Modern I think American... That like, what is that? To well, help us Brits understand what that is. Sure. I think that in trying to kind of understand what I'm saying with what I'm making, I kind of came up with this three-word description. And first, I'll just step back and say that I'm a very, very analytical person. And when you talk about inspiration, one of the key moments in the journey from from the idea to the reality of a product is like, does this have a raison d'etre? Like, I'll have an idea and I might even get halfway along and I'll be like, does this need to exist? Will the world be any poorer without it? And if it doesn't pass that test, then I kind of don't do it. You know, so it needs a raison d'etre. And that's really something that we think about all the time. We get rid of tons of bits before they get onto the sales floor because they're fungible. They're, you know, they could be done by somebody else. They could just already exist in the world. Like who needs them? So I, so something has to have a raison d'etre. And that's, that somehow is part of my inspirational process, really. And the analysis required to decide if something has a raison d'etre is exactly kind of how I got to my three-word description of what I do, modern American glamour. I think that's what I'm trying to create. I, I use the word modern because it's about creating something that is new. And even if it's trad, it's a new take on trad. So I, I always strive to make my work modern. American is... A funny one, I think that I'm very grounded in an American idiom and sensibility. Whilst spiritually English, I'm very much an American. You know, America is the land of like freedom and opportunity and possibility and optimism. It's big, wide open spaces and sunshine. And it's a very optimistic mindset, at least <laughs> in my own mind. And then I think glamour is a really interesting an impossible to define word. People use it all the time, liberally. I don't quite know if anyone knows exactly what it means, but in my mind, glamour means being confident and memorable and full of swagger. You know, and to me, that's what makes something glamorous. I mean, on a visual level, it can be glamour can come from a bit of sparkle and twinkle, which is a confident swagger filled move you know mirror and light and bright but it's but it's more a spirit of of yeah swagger and memorability and did you grow up in a house that was glamorous or you know we we interviewed a while ago the designer Matthew Williamson and he spoke very movingly about watching his mother get dressed and put on her best clothes to go out putting her makeup on and he sort of absorbed that idea and 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 has carried that with him did you, you know, did you grow up in a house where, where glamour was encouraged or is your design ethos now a reaction against something that was a bit browner? 
<laughs> it's such a great question, and I have a somewhat complicated answer. I grew up in a tiny farm town, and my parents were kind of urbane sophisticates. My dad was a lawyer, but he spent every waking moment when he wasn't at his office making art. And he was a brilliantly talented dude who made the decision to sort of have a job and provide for his family rather than follow his passion as a career. And he might have made the right choice, by the way, because he was endlessly prolific and creative and seemed quite satisfied. You know, he wasn't... So his creativity was truly like a pure pursuit. Um, my mom is quite creative and she's more colorful, but my, my house was, was very, as I said, in a small town, but it was quite modern. And there were a couple of other figures in my childhood and my life who were very inspiring. So my, my house and my parents were truly very inspiring. And I, as much as I would like to think I'm a brilliant, sui generis being, I'm very much a product of my parents and my brother and sister and I are all the same and we're all just one thing. Uh, but we had a next door neighbor who was sort of our best family friend called Mrs. Goldstein. And my God, was she glamorous. Her house <laughs> was so swaggery and eclectic and modern and full of art and bold and colorful, whereas mine was much more sort of clean-lined and modern. So I think I get sort of my mod, the mod side of my sensibility from her. And then my grandmother was incredibly chic and stylish and had all these all these fantastic bits and bobs from her travels. Like she would go to Denmark and get, you know, an incredible Danish potter from the 50s. And she had a couple of Janet Leach pots from England. And those are the very bits that my brother and sister and I, you know, are practically at war with each other over since my grandmother died 25 yeah. years ago. I'm still like, where's that teapot that she had? And she'd be like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, I think you do. Uh, so she very much inspired my ethos of trying to create the things that heirs will fight over. And she she informed the more crafty side of me. Mrs. G, Mrs. Goldstein definitely informed the more mod and glamorous thing. And my parents informed the modern design rigor that is the basis of everything I do. Wow. Wow. So And so the young Jonathan was just absorbing all this design influence. It's such a funny question and a really interesting one because I think now creative kids are just encouraged to, you know, let their freak flag fly. And it's not that my parents ever tried to tamp down my freak flag. It's just that, you know, it was a more conventional time when couldn't be gay, obviously. And I had different interests that were quite at, at odds with each other. I'm incredibly sporty. So I was always sort of outside playing football or basketball or whatever. And so I kind of had these really two sides. Like on the one hand, I was like a little sporty dude. And on the other <laughs> hand, I was a petite esthete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was an improbable combo. And yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing how one sensibility is formed. And I think it's a non-linear and multifaceted thing. Thank you, Jonathan. That's just, I've really enjoyed that. I found that really insightful. Oh, good. Well, one brief shout out to British design just before we go. I am the biggest British design enthusiast. My time spent in college here, I basically just lived at the V&A. I would just go there and sort of soak it all up. And as a potter, pottery like the modern potter could not exist 
without the Bernard Leeches and Lucy Rees and Hans Kopers of the world. So I, my heart is in British craft and pottery. And I think a lot of people see my work and see kind of like some of the more glitzy, glamorous stuff. But I, I hope you'll also see that there is a real foundation of craft and no shortage of earthy realness. So, you know, and as much as I'm American, huge shout out and love for English design, craft, and color. And I was just in the English countryside for the weekend, and my God, my God, do you guys have incredible nature. And just the lichens alone in the English countryside are enough to, like, it's all that needed to happen was the beautiful, earthy lichens that are growing au naturel. Well, you've come at the you've come at the perfect time of year, I have to say. Summer in the UK is like no place else, is it? It's absolutely gorgeous. And as I'm sat here talking to you, I live in the Sussex countryside and I'm just listening to the birds. And, and is, you understand yeah. a meadow and you understand when not to mow. <laughs> well, I'm bringing you back to earth because I'm staring at the AstroTurf playing field of the school opposite my house. So... <laughs> But what I'm taking away, I'm loving this idea of your your brother and sister and you all fighting over Mrs. Goldstein's teapot. And I have visions of, you know, you going round to your sister's house and sort of taking a bag, putting it in and squirrelling it away. And then your brother coming round to your house and going, oh, that's where it is. And him squirrelling it away to his place. And these, these things going round and round your houses. I love that idea. That's, that is my true life. And I'm glad I feel seen at last. <laughs> I cannot wait to get myself up to town and see your new showroom and uh, make one more little purchase. Oh, please. And go, to, go to my growing collection. Um, it has been my absolute pleasure to get to spend an hour talking to you lovely ladies about myself. Yeah. Um, have a gorgeous day. Just give us the address of the shop. 91 Pelham Street in London. There you go. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Lovely. And have a lovely day playing in your new shop. I shall. Thank you so much. It's been a real treat. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Before we go, I'll just remind you once more about our great Indoors Insiders Club, where you can enjoy ad-free listening, bonus content, and first dibs on ticketed events. Just visit thegreatindoorspodcast.com to sign up. We'll be back next week with our monthly style surgery, so send us those questions and we will offer up our pearls of wisdom. Simply send us an email, or preferably a voice note, to help at thegreatindoorspodcast.com. All that remains is to thank our producer, Sarah Cudden of Feast Collective. And thank you so much to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. Great indoors.